This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Sick and Murdered, where I share stories of people who cause others to fall ill, sometimes killing them for their own selfish gain. This week's episode is, I think, one of the strangest and most bizarre crimes I've ever encountered. I've shared stories of murderous women who were odd characters before. Jody Arias, Betty Broderick, and Beverly Allett come to mind. But I'd venture to say that Marie Hilly really stands out from the pack. Her story is endlessly fascinating. Just when you think it couldn't get crazier or more bizarre, it does. The only way I could tell you this story is by following the timeline of Marie Hilly's life. I don't always lay out a story in chronological order, but this one, I think, is best told this way, so as not to spoil any of the surprises. And this story has so many twists and turns and so many interesting details that I couldn't share it all in just one episode. So this one will be a two-parter. I can't wait to share the story with you. So just a quick word from our sponsor, and then let's dig in. This is Chapter 3, Marie Hilly. Audrey Marie Frazier was born in Blue Mountain, Alabama on June 4, 1933. Her father, Huey, worked at Linen Thread Company, the local mill, as did many of the residents of their small town. He and his wife, Lucille, suffered the loss of their first child, who was stillborn, two years earlier. They thought that perhaps Lucille was carrying twins, since they ran in the family. Huey himself was a twin. He and his brother, Louie, had been very close, as is typical of twin siblings. They had only been separated for the first time, soon after Huey married Lucille. Huey stayed in Blue Mountain to work at the mill, while Louie decided to head out west, residing first in Texas. There was also a history of twins on Lucille's side of the family. But their child was a single, and they named her Audrey Marie, although her first name was never used by the family. She was always simply called Marie. Huey Frazier was a sweet and loving man, but he was sometimes unreliable. He wasn't very ambitious and could even be described as lazy. He would often be sick, or say he was, and stay home from work. The country's economy was barely limping along after the Great Depression, and for a man to stay home sick from work was virtually unheard of. If you were fortunate enough to have a job, you worked, especially if you had a family to provide for. But Huey would stay home many days from the mill, resting in bed. At other times, he would disappear altogether. He missed his twin brother and more than once left to visit him and his family in Tyler, Texas. He would return weeks or months later, as if it was nothing out of the ordinary. As a result, Lucille was responsible for providing the bulk of the income for her family. She was no stranger to work, having been employed in one place or another since she was 13 years old. Her father had died of a burst appendix before he was 40 years old, and as one of six children, it was necessary for everyone to help support the family. Now she provided for herself and her only child, Marie, and Huey when he was around. When she went to work at Linen Thread Company, Marie was babysat by her grandmother, Susie. Marie's aunts and uncles all lived nearby, and she spent many happy hours playing with her cousins in Blue Mountain. Marie's sole female cousin, Robbie McCullers, was the polar opposite of Marie, Marie was a small, pretty, dainty girl who always wore dresses and liked to have her hair curled just so. As an only child, she was spoiled by her parents, 
and was given more than her cousins, whose families had more mouths to feed. Robbie, growing up with three brothers, was more of a tomboy, preferring to wear her brother's hand-me-down jeans to make it easier to run and play. Marie preferred to stay neat and tidy. She was doted on by her older male cousins, who treated her like a pretty pet. Marie, in turn, used her charm to bend the boys to her will. They often gave Marie her way to keep her happy. Marie's extended family would say that she was given her every wish by her parents, whether it was a new toy, pretty dresses and shoes, or tap dancing lessons. Marie never had to ask twice before she got what she requested. Even things earmarked for others became Marie's possessions. Once, when her cousin Robbie was ill with chickenpox, her mother brought her a sweet cake for a treat to cheer her up. Marie demanded a portion, and when her cousin refused, Marie attacked her, biting her viciously on the stomach. Neither of Marie's parents disciplined her. That task was handed over to her grandmother, Susie. Susie was gentle but firm with Marie. She might get an occasional spanking, or more often was made to sit in the corner as a punishment, but nothing more harsh than that. Blue Mountain was a rural town, and as Marie was preparing to enter junior high school, Lucille decided her daughter should attend a better school. She dreamed of more for her daughter than working in a mill. She encouraged her to get an education and enough skills to be hired as a secretary. That was living the dream for a girl from Blue Mountain in the 1930s and 40s. So the Frasers moved from Blue Mountain to Anniston, located five miles away. Marie entered Quintard Junior High School in Anniston. Marie soon made friends, many of them boys. Marie was an attractive girl with curly brown hair, a pretty face, and a dainty figure. Even at 13 years old, she was allowed to wear lipstick and always had her hair styled perfectly. Her clothes had always been a cut above that of her classmates, and she was always perfectly put together. It would be a habit she would keep all of her life. She always looked stylish, sometimes a little too stylish for her surroundings, but it made her stand out from the pack. Marie was voted prettiest girl in her junior high yearbook in 1946. When Marie entered Aniston High School, she had her pick of boys who wanted to date her. Marie seemed older and more worldly than her 14 years, and even upperclassmen were drawn to her. The first was a 10th grader named Calvin Robertson. He was handsome and shy, and when Marie waved to him one day, he was bowled over. His gentleness created a power dynamic between them, where, like she'd done with other males before, she was able to get her way and take the lead in the relationship. Before long, Frank Hilly, a senior at Aniston High and four years older than her, set his sights on Marie. Calvin, feeling like he couldn't compete with the older boy, simply stepped aside. But he never forgot Marie, his first love. Decades later, when she reached out to him for help, he would sacrifice everything to be there for her. Frank Hilly asked Marie out on a double date. Soon, they were going steady. They made an attractive couple and seemed so joined at the hip that everyone predicted they would end up married. Frank's family didn't have much money, but he treated Marie like a queen, and she, of course, liked that. Marie, throughout her life, would choose men who were flattered by her attention and were smitten enough with her looks and charm to give in to her wants. Frank was no exception. He was also older and had a jealous temper when it came to Marie, which also made her feel special. Frank had two younger sisters, Jewel, who was the same age as Marie, and Frida, three years younger. Frank introduced Marie right away to his family. Jewel was never that thrilled with her, 
but his mother Carrie thought she was nice enough. Frida often tagged along on Frank and Marie's dates and was awed by her brother's pretty and glamorous girlfriend. As she spent more time in her company, Frida would hear stories from Marie about her life growing up in Blue Mountain. She told Frida that she'd been neglected by her parents as a child. They had abandoned her, she said, dumping her off with her grandmother. She said she never knew when or if they were coming to take her home. This would be one of the first tales of woe that Marie would spin to strangers throughout her life. Those who knew her would refute most of these stories regarding her terrible upbringing. At Anniston High, Marie Hilly began to invent herself to fit in with the social set. Anniston's version of high society was made up of the mill and factory owners. Some of their children attended high school with Marie, and she was bound and determined to be accepted into their circle. I picture a reverse pretty in pink scenario. She began by joining a couple of the school clubs that were mostly populated by girls who were planning to pursue secretarial careers, the Commercial Club and Future Teachers of America. The main reason for Marie's interest in these clubs seemed to be to get close to a girl named Rachel Knight. Rachel was one of the most popular girls at Anniston High. She was a class officer, a member of the National Honor Society, was voted queen of the prom, and dated the captain of the football team. She held positions in the clubs that Marie joined. In each of the club photos in the yearbook, you can see Marie right beside Rachel. Marie is as nicely dressed and well-groomed as Rachel, but what's obvious and startling is that Marie looks almost like Rachel's twin. There is a slight resemblance, the same coloring and wide-set eyes, but it's plain to see that Marie has copied her idol in almost every way. Even her hair is cut and styled in an exact replica of Rachel's. It was as if Marie was trying to become her idol and friend. It was beyond just a little bit strange. By the time Marie finished her first year in high school, Frank Kelly had graduated and joined the Navy. The Korean War was just beginning, and after boot camp, he was shipped to Guam. He was worried about losing Marie to another boy, so when he came home on leave in 1950, he proposed. They were married, although Marie was still in high school. She stayed in Anniston until after her graduation. She then moved to Long Beach, California, to join her husband. In 1952, Frank was reassigned to the Boston Navy Yard, so he and Marie relocated to New England. Marie loved the cold weather and snow during her first winter in the North. She found it romantic and cozy to sit inside next to a warm fire, reading a book, while the snow fell in a lush white blanket outside. However, that spring they discovered that Marie was pregnant. Frank's stint in the Navy was ending, so they decided to return to Anniston, where they could be near family to help Marie with the baby. Michael Hilly was born on November 11, 1952. Frank went to work in the shipping department at the foundry, while Marie put her secretarial skills to work at the Alabama Gas Company. The Hillies settled into life in Anniston with a close circle of old high school friends and co-workers. They spent weekends hosting cookouts or going to friends' homes for drinks and to play cards. Frank liked to drink beer with the guys, but Marie wasn't much of a drinker. After a few years, Frank was promoted to head of the shipping department. To prepare himself to move up the company ladder, he also took night classes at Jacksonville State University. Marie was in demand as a secretary for some of Aniston's most successful business owners and in these positions rubbed elbows with the town's upper crust. The Hillies were well-known and well-liked in Aniston. Marie was vivacious, pretty, 
and was always stylishly dressed with every hair in place. Frank was quieter than his wife, but was pleasant and friendly. The Hillies purchased their first home soon after they moved back to Anniston. Marie thought it was too small and wanted to upgrade to something larger and in a better part of town as soon as possible. In the meantime, she decided to remodel their starter home. She hired a friend, Rose White, who'd studied as an interior decorator, to work on the project. Again, this was something that wasn't typical, at least not for someone as young and middle class as the Hillies were. But Marie always got what she wanted. While working with Rose on the project, she found out all about her family and her upbringing. Rose had attended the University of Alabama, one of the few girls in their class to continue on to college. Rose's father was a successful real estate investor, and Marie was impressed with the fact that Rose stood to inherit a great deal of money. Rose and her husband invited Marie and Frank to their home for dinner. Her father had purchased the large modern home for the couple when they were married. Rose had decorated it beautifully, and it was filled with elegant and tasteful furniture and decorations. Marie was so impressed and honored to be considered a friend, possibly the reason she had stretched her budget to hire Rose, that she could not stop gushing to her other friends about her friend and all her possessions. Marie's other friends began to feel that she was putting on airs by talking nonstop about Rose's wealth. In their eyes, it seemed that Marie was subtly putting them down for having less and was trying to act like a big shot by association. Frank, on the other hand, was not impressed by money and possessions. He liked to live modestly, but was often pushed by his wife to buy more expensive items that were outside of their budget. Whether it was expensive furniture, a newer and bigger car, or clothes and jewelry, Frank always gave in to Marie's demands. He just couldn't seem to refuse his wife anything. Friends and family began to notice that Marie always had something new to show off. They suspected that the Hillies might be getting into debt with all of her spending, but decided to butt out. It wasn't their business, they decided. Michael Hilly was an only child for seven years when Carol Marie was born in 1960. Frank and Marie were coming up on their 10th wedding anniversary. Outwardly, they were still the ideal all-American family, but behind closed doors there was tension in the hilly home. Marie continued to spend money with abandon and later began hiding purchases and even credit accounts from Frank. Frank was feeling the strain to keep up with the mortgage and all the other bills. He began to drink a six-pack of beer most nights before heading home. A co-worker noticed his increase in drinking and speculated that Frank felt he needed to down some liquid courage before heading home. They should have been doing well financially. Frank had a good job with a decent salary and Marie was still working as an executive secretary, bringing income into the home as well. But Marie, while still in demand as a secretary, tended to hop from job to job. She had a pattern of behavior at work, another pattern that continued throughout her life. She would begin working at a company and quickly proved herself to be smart, friendly, and professional. Her employers, always well-to-do business owners, were impressed with her right away. Marie, since she was a girl, always seemed to have an instinct on how to charm the males around her. She knew how to become what they most needed from her. If they needed female attention, she was flirty. If they needed a mother figure, she was maternal. If they needed someone to take charge, she could be tough and no nonsense. In return, her employers gave her increasing responsibility, did her favors when needed, and sometimes became infatuated with her. 
But her track record with coworkers was another story. She would start out by making friends at work. They were often impressed with her competence on the job and drawn to her vivaciousness. She was pleasant and fun to be around, at first. After a while, some were turned off by her. Sometimes it was just her constant need for attention. Some tired of the drama that she constantly seemed to have surrounding her. Others would say they couldn't quite put their finger on it, but they just felt uncomfortable around her. It might have been her high-mannered ways that they felt was a subtle put-down of normal people like them. Others felt she was phony and liked to exaggerate in a way that was irritating. Whatever the reason, she would soon find herself alone and without friends at her job. She began complaining to family members that there were vendettas against her at work and that people were deliberately out to hurt her. Even those who remained friendly with Marie were soon given the cold shoulder and pushed out of her life. She would then either be let go or quit and moved on to the next position. Another source of tension in the Hilly home was the way Frank and Marie played favorites with their children. Mike could get away with almost anything with Marie. She wouldn't or couldn't discipline him. As a result, he learned he could defy her and she would just throw up her hands. But with Carol, Marie was much more demanding. She criticized her daughter and picked at her over every little thing. Perhaps as a result of this, or perhaps just because he chose to, Frank gave extra attention to Carol. They became close and spent time together fishing and golfing. He was proud of his daughter and delighted that she enjoyed sharing his interests. This, however, made Marie angry and perhaps jealous of their relationship. Later, some family members would say that Marie had been upset when she found herself pregnant with her second child. She was already growing disillusioned in her marriage and was thinking of divorcing Frank. Then she found out she was pregnant. Some would speculate that this was why Marie resented her daughter and why things would play out the way they did later on. But I'm getting ahead of myself. For whatever the reason, Marie was hard on Carol, and she responded by becoming more rebellious, which drove Marie crazy. The relationship was often strained. Carol was wired very differently than her mother. While Marie had always taken pains to wear pretty dresses and have her hair styled neatly from her youngest days, Carol preferred to play sports and didn't mind getting dirty. This irked Marie to no end. She also tried to mold her daughter into the type of girl she had admired while in school. It didn't help that Carol's friend and cousin, Lisa, fit Marie's ideal to a T. Lisa was popular and pretty and was a member of the National Honor Society, a drum majorette, and had been elected homecoming queen. Carol and Lisa were friends, but Carol was not interested in trying to copy her cousin. She was her own person, preferring to wear jeans, little makeup, and ride her dirt bike a hard-fought battle that she nagged and cajoled her mother into purchasing for her over her father's objections. Marie criticized her daughter, asking, Why can't you be more like Lisa? Parents, let me just tell you what you probably already know. Never compare your kids to someone else or ever ask this question. It's very rude and will get you nowhere. But there was another question Carol hated even more that her mother would ask. Why are you always out with girls? Why don't you ever go out with boys? Carol often socialized with a group of friends, boys and girls, but it was true she had not yet begun dating, unlike her mother, who began having boyfriends from the age of 12. Carol thought the question was her mother's veiled attempt to pry into her sexual preference, something Carol, as a young teen, had not yet even decided upon and was not very concerned with yet. Her mother's comments, though, made her believe that this was just one other area of her life that her mother disapproved of. 
When they were young, Carol and Mike were often babysat by their paternal grandmother, Carrie Hilly, while Frank and Marie worked. From their grandmother, Carrie, they received the consistent discipline they needed. Her home also gave them a haven away from the mounting tension between their parents. Frank began to spend more time away from home at the local Elks Club. There he could drink without being nagged. He also began playing in poker games for small stakes. While Marie complained frequently about Frank's time away from home, she also used it to her advantage to shop and bring home purchases without Frank becoming wise to how much she was spending. Marie's mother, Lucille, had moved in with Frank and Marie after the death of Marie's father. Lucille would often go on shopping sprees with her daughter. When questioned about new items that were appearing in the home, Marie would explain that Lucille had bought them. Marie was able to keep her spending hidden from her husband by opening up various store accounts around town and renting a post office box where the bills were sent. Frank Hilly never knew how much money was owed on these accounts, but by 1973, records would show that Marie applied for credit or took out loans in over a dozen stores, banks, and finance companies. When the amount she owed on her credit cards began to rise and she was in danger of being found out, she approached the Universal Credit Corporation in Anniston to ask for a short-term loan. The Hillies had a car loan through the Universal Credit in the past that had since been paid off. Frank was not one to want to carry a lot of debt. As a matter of fact, it was soon after the last payment on the car loan was made that Marie went alone to the credit corporation and borrowed $500 using the car as collateral. She gave them the post office box address as the new mailing address. Not long afterwards, she did the same at a different finance company in Anniston, borrowing more money. However, the store accounts that were overdue still remained unpaid. At the same time, Marie's moods became more erratic. She was frequently in arguments with her teenage daughter. Her husband was away from home much more often, and Mike had learned to avoid the conflict at home by becoming a ghost, either busy with school or other activities, or by just staying silent and hiding in his room. Marie began to complain bitterly to her sister-in-law, Frida. The girl who'd idolized Marie when her big brother brought her home to meet the family was now a grown woman who thought Marie was making mountains out of molehills. Sure, her teenage daughter could be a pain. Whose wasn't? And yes, Frank liked to drink at the club, but he always came home and even called her to tell her how long he'd be out. He was a good man who worked and provided for his family, in Frida's opinion. Marie really didn't have much to complain about, she thought. Marie would cry, Nobody loves me around here. Frank leaves me all alone, all the time. Nobody cares about me. Frank doesn't care. Mike doesn't care. And Carol doesn't care. This was a refrain that many friends and family members would hear from Marie over the years. Marie had always been a big reader, and when she wasn't shopping, she often had her nose buried in a book. She shut the world out for hours when she was absorbed in one of her romance novels or mysteries. At one point, she had bought so many books, she ran out of room in the house and donated over 150 of them to the Anniston Library. Mike left home in 1972 to begin his sophomore year in college. Carol was now left alone. Marie was also gone many evenings a month by this time, and her father was also often away in the evenings. At other times, Marie would be home more, and it was then that she would take a renewed interest in Carol, nagging her about her grades, asking her about the details of her friends and social life, and trying to exert more control over her daughter's life. 
Marie was pleased when her daughter began a friendship with a girl named Sonia Gibson. Sonia was a couple of years younger than Carol, a pretty petite girl whose family attended the same church as the Hillies. Marie began calling Sonia's mother and inviting the girl over to spend time with Carol. But Marie perhaps began to believe the girls were too close. Again, she began to think that Carol was more interested in girls than boys. Marie kept a close eye on Carol when she was with her friend. In 1973, over the Christmas holiday break, Sonia spent time at the Hillies' home. That February, Sonia became ill with what seemed to be the flu. Two days later, she was so ill she could not walk and experienced a high fever and vomiting. Her mother took her to the local hospital, but doctors diagnosed her condition as serious and in need of specialized care. She was taken by helicopter to Children's Hospital in Birmingham, but died in the helicopter before it even landed. It was a huge blow to her family, and her mother never understood what had taken her daughter so suddenly when she had never been seriously ill in her life. Doctors determined the cause of death as a viral illness that led to an inflammation of the heart lining. It would be just the first loss that Carol Hilly was to experience as a teen. The next one also came out of the blue. Marie, feeling neglected by her husband and always able to turn men's heads, now used her feminine wiles to her advantage. She began having flirtations and then affairs with a number of men who were her current or former employers. Walter Clinton was the owner of Clinton Controls in Anniston. He was a successful business owner and was well-known in town. He decided to hire an executive secretary, and Marie applied for the job. However, she was still employed by Harold Dillard, the owner of a large construction firm. Harold had first become like a father figure to Marie, but later the relationship turned more personal. It is likely she was seeing Harold romantically, She showed off to her mother gifts and money that Harold had given her. If Frank suspected anything, he never mentioned it. Now she quit Harold's employ to work for Walter Clinton. Marie spent long hours working with Clinton, and it was suspected by other employees that they had begun an affair. By this time, Mike Hilly had transferred to Atlanta Christian College. He decided to become a minister. While there, he met and married a girl named Terry Henderson. While he was away, he didn't know much of what was happening at home, nor did he care to know, he'd later admit. During the Thanksgiving weekend of 1974, things must have been weighing heavy on Frank's mind. He'd just met Mike's new father-in-law, who was such a warm and personable man that he was called Happy rather than his given name of Everett. Frank, who'd always kept his thoughts and feelings to himself, now confided in Happy. He said that things were difficult at home, and he needed someone to talk to. Perhaps because he was a virtual stranger, Frank felt he could open up without feeling judged. He told Happy about being in the middle of the fights and arguments between Marie and her mother and Marie and Carol. He also said that he thought Marie ought to see a doctor, which Happy took to mean a psychiatrist. Then Frank said, There's something I want to tell you, but I don't want it to get around. Frank hesitated, and very uncomfortable now, Happy told him that perhaps he should talk to his minister. Frank then ended the conversation. Happy never found out what it was he wanted to say. That fall, Frank Hilly became ill. 
a friend inquired about his health after running into him on the street. Frank looked sickly, and he hadn't been seen out socially in a while. Frank explained that he'd often run a fever, and then it would disappear, only to return again a day or two later. His doctor didn't know what was causing it. As a matter of fact, Frank Hilly was sick a lot in 1974. He had recurring headaches that were so painful they brought tears to his eyes. He explained them away, saying they were caused by allergies. His illnesses must have caused him to think about his own mortality, because early in 1975, he took out a burial policy on himself for $5,000. Or perhaps it was something a 45-year-old man begins to think about for the first time. He also made a comment to his sister Frida around that time. If anything ever happens to me, Marie's going to be a wealthy woman. It's left to wonder whether he might have also made this comment to his wife. Mike and Terry now lived about 90 minutes from his parents, and Mike would sometimes make the drive to meet his father for a round of golf near Anniston. Increasingly, his father was ill, and one weekend his mother called him right before a planned golf outing to tell him that his father had been sick with stomach problems and wasn't going to make it. She said he'd gotten ill after eating at a restaurant in town. When they were finally able to meet, Frank told Mike there was something he needed to talk to him about. I don't know what I'm going to do, he told his son. I got sick at work and came home early. Frank took a long pause before continuing. I found your mother in bed with Walter Clinton. He'd been stunned and was frozen in his tracks for several moments. He then turned and walked out of the house and drove away without saying a word. Mike, shocked, asked his father what had happened since then. He and Marie hadn't talked about it much, he said. Things had been bad between them for a while, but he never suspected this. It was obvious to Mike that his father was shattered by this revelation. Mike didn't know what to say. It was an awkward position to be in, and he wished he didn't know. Mike finished the golf game with his father, and promising to see him again the next weekend, drove home. The following Friday, his mother called. Frank wasn't going to be able to play golf. He came home from work ill. He'd been sick most of the week with a fever, nausea, and diarrhea. Workers at the plant were wondering if the chemicals they worked around were seeping into the water and causing Frank's illness. Perhaps they might become ill as well, they speculated. No one else had been sick, however. Marie said his father was feeling a little better, but was still weak, and she'd made him stay in bed. He was planning to be out for a week on vacation anyway. She said she'd make sure he rested during his time off. When Frank didn't improve by Monday, Marie took him to see his doctor. He was still vomiting and his abdomen was tender, but the fever was gone. The doctor thought it was probably the remnants of a stomach virus and prescribed him some medicine to help with the symptoms. By Thursday, he was even worse. Besides his other symptoms, he was dizzy and nauseated and couldn't keep food down. He was also starting to become disoriented. In the middle of the night, he was discovered by Marie, wandering outside in his underwear. He didn't recognize her and just asked, Where's the car? Friday morning, she admitted him to the hospital. She called Mike. The doctor can't seem to do anything for him. If he doesn't get well, he's going to die. Mike was shocked by her words. His father had never been sick in his life. How could this be true? Mike and Terry left for the hospital immediately. Mike was taken aback by his father's condition. He seemed to have shrunk in size and was weak. He was also a ghastly yellow color. He was diagnosed with infectious hepatitis. Now that they had an answer, 
His doctor began to treat him for the liver malfunction that he believed was the result of the hepatitis. But on Saturday, there was still no improvement. He was increasingly disoriented and sometimes seemed not to recognize them or even know where he was. His sister Frida came to see him and was shocked at how quickly he deteriorated. She'd just seen him the previous Thursday at home. He'd been sick, and when she walked into his room, he was sitting in bed rubbing his arm. She asked him what he was doing. Dr. Jones has told Marie that she'll have to learn to give me shots at home, Frank said. The implication was that Marie had given him a shot in the crook of his arm, where he was rubbing a red spot. The Hillies had a neighbor, Doris Ford, who was a nurse, and Marie said offered a teacher how to give Frank injections. Frida found this odd. Why wouldn't the doctor have showed her, or had one of the nurses in the hospital teach her? The next thing Frank said really worried her. Frida, I'm sicker than I've ever been in my life. If something isn't done for me, I'm not going to be here long. Now seeing how sick he was, she was beyond worried. On her way out of the hospital, she ran into a local pastor and shared her concern about her brother with him. He told her not to worry. Nobody dies from hepatitis nowadays, he said. She felt somewhat comforted. The next day was Sunday, and Mike was expected back at his church to present the sermon. He didn't want to leave his mother alone, afraid she would not be able to help his father on her own. When he left the hospital, it was late, and there was only a few nurses left on duty. He decided to go and pick up his grandmothers, Lucille and Carrie, to help Marie. By the time Mike returned to the hospital, it was the middle of the night. Marie was dozing in a chair by the door. His father was eerily still in his bed. He turned to his mother, who then opened her eyes and calmly said, I don't think Dad's breathing. He ran to the nurse's station for help. By the time he roused help and returned to his father's room, he was dead. Frank Hilly died on May 25, 1975. He was 45 years old. Carol Hilly was only 15 years old when her father died. His death floored her. She needed to know what had happened to her father. The doctor didn't have a lot of answers. He couldn't really explain what had happened to kill Frank so quickly. The official cause of death was listed as infectious hepatitis. Because of this, county health inspectors were sent to take samples of the water at the foundry where Frank was employed. But they turned up no traces of bacteria that could have been the source of Frank's infection. Frank Hilly was buried the following Tuesday in Forest Lawn Garden Cemetery. On Thursday, Marie applied for his life insurance. The payout amounted to a little more than $30,000, which converts to about $135,000 in today's dollars. She also received about $5,000 a year in Social Security survivor's benefits. This would be equivalent to about $22,000 per year in income today. It wasn't enough to make her rich, but it was a tidy sum to live off of. Her salary at the time was $225 per week. The mortgage on their house and the money owed on Frank's credit accounts were paid off by the life insurance attached to the loans. Just before Frank's death, Marie had fallen behind on payments on the secret loan she had taken out at Universal Credit. The week after she received the life insurance, she paid off the loan in full. But instead of mourning her husband for any length of time, Marie went on a spending spree. She purchased a new Cutlass Oldsmobile. Those cars in the 70s were nice and worth a pretty penny now. She ran up accounts at two pricey department stores in town, purchasing a new wardrobe for herself. 
She bought herself a jade and diamond necklace and matching earrings, as well as a diamond ring for her mother. She also bought new furniture. Carol listed for Mike all the things Marie had purchased for her as well, a stereo, a bicycle, and new furniture for her room. Soon after Carol turned 16, she bought her a car as well, a new 1976 Honda. She also had a new washing machine delivered to Mike and Terry. Marie's behavior began to become more emotional and erratic than before. At first, of course, it was attributed to her husband's death. But later, as it became more bizarre, no one knew exactly what to think. She always seemed to be upset about something. Her most frequent complaint was about Carol. She became more intrusive into her daughter's life. Carol couldn't stand it because she felt that her mother had never been that close to her. Sure, she showed affection through material things, but she wasn't really emotionally available, and Carol had resented it. Now she tried to steer clear of Marie, and she certainly didn't want her meddling in her affairs. Whenever Marie spoke to other family members, she'd lament, Nobody loves me. The whole family is against me. She began calling her father's twin, her uncle Louis, and his wife, who now lived in Florida, to pour out her troubles. She also reached out to Frida, her sister-in-law, for moral support. It seemed Marie needed to keep everyone close to her. When Mike was offered a position as a pastor at a church in Anniston, she encouraged him to come and live with her and Carol and Lucille. They moved in for a while, but realized that the tension between his mother and Carol and his grandmother was something they didn't want to be in the middle of. After a few months, they decided to move to an apartment. Marie was upset, saying that they were abandoning her when she needed them most. He explained that they wouldn't be far away, but they needed their own place. It was at this time that the drama around Marie Hilly began to increase. The night before Mike and Terry were set to move out, they were at church for the Sunday evening service when a neighbor saw smoke coming from Marie's house and called the fire department. Everyone was gone at the time. Marie said she had left with Lucille for a ride. Carol was out with friends. The fire hadn't gone far, but the smoke had caused extensive damage, and they had to move out of the house while repairs were being done. Marie and Carol moved with Mike and Terry to their new apartment. When the repairs were almost done a month later, the apartment next to Mike and Terry's caught on fire. The smoke drifted next door, damaging their place as well. Mike and Terry were then forced to move into Marie's place. A coincidence? I think not. Meanwhile, Marie's mother Lucille was diagnosed with breast cancer and was undergoing treatment. She'd had a mastectomy performed, but the cancer had spread. She lasted through the Christmas season of 1976, before dying in early January. After the death of her mother, Marie's behavior took another odd twist. A few months later, she began calling the Anniston Police Department with a series of emergencies. First, she said she had been smelling gas fumes at her house for several weeks. They investigated, but found no sign of a gas leak. At the same time, Marie's neighbor Doris Ford told a friend she had discovered the gas on her outdoor grill turned up all the way, and she had smelled it outside. Marie had filed a suit against the local gas company for the fire at her house, blaming them for installing a faulty heating and air conditioning unit. The lawsuit had been thrown out. Whether this report had anything to do with the suit is a mystery. Next, Marie called to report a fire that she discovered in her hall closet at around 4 a.m. There was no sign of a break-in. Again, another mystery. Two days later, Doris Ford returned from a trip to find a fire had started in her hall closet. Luckily, it had burned itself out before doing any damage. 
Marie Hilly was in possession of a copy of Doris's house key that she'd been given in case of an emergency. Marie said she hadn't been inside Doris's house while she was away. When Marie called the police department, she would frequently speak to Lieutenant Gary Carroll. Lieutenant Carroll would become very familiar with Marie Hilly and for a time would consider her a friend. There were many more reports from Marie. In three months, she'd called about gas fumes four times. She also reported a burglary where jewelry, two guns, and a hairdryer had been taken. Another night, she said she drove up to her house to see the kitchen light turning off and on. She went and retrieved a police officer, but when they returned with her, no one was there. But the next phase of her reports would be all similar in nature and would continue for some time to come. Marie Hilly said she was receiving nuisance phone calls several times a day, and she said she also began receiving threatening notes. Someone would call her home, say nothing, and then hang up over and over. Then one day, she returned home from shopping, of course, and found a piece from an envelope taped to her back door. Written in blocky-type lettering, I'm picturing Robert Durst typewriting, Beverly. This note read, You are going to be sorry if you don't move. Lieutenant Carroll took the note and had it dusted for fingerprints. Now you know this is a small town without a lot of crime. Nothing turned up. The lieutenant thought it must be a prowler, because at the same time, her neighbor Doris was calling to report noises in her backyard, as well as a window screen being cut out. But he wasn't able to determine who was causing these incidents. What would later be determined was that Marie herself was causing the drama around her. Whether she did it for attention, for company, or for some other unknown reason is unclear. It became obvious that she was enjoying the visits by the police officers. Besides Lieutenant Carroll... Several other officers had visited Marie's home on various complaints over several months. She was always grateful and friendly to the officers, even though they never resolved anything. Every time they came to take a report, she offered them a cup of coffee. This was unusual. Cops were rarely shown this type of hospitality, and most of the officers took her up on the beverage. Lieutenant Carroll, however, wasn't a coffee drinker and always declined. There was one officer in particular that Marie began to ask for. He worked the night shift at the Aniston PD, and he was the department horn dog. Officer Atherton was in his late 30s and divorced, and had worked his way through many of the available women in Aniston. He was teased because he was not discerning. Young, old, blonde, brunette, redhead, or probably even bald, if that was a thing then. Atherton didn't care. He was fond of recreational sex. We'll just leave it at that. Marie was in her 40s and was attractive and still dressed to show off her figure. Her weight had fluctuated after Frank's death, but she was still petite. She knew she could still attract men, and now she had her sights on Officer Atherton. He began arriving to her house on one complaint or another. One day, she moved from being friendly to making a pass. He was happy to receive it. They began sleeping together. The other officers joked about it, but they were hopeful that now maybe the lonely widow would stop making false claims about being harassed. But they didn't stop. She kept reporting nuisance hang-up calls and said they'd started several months earlier. Some had occurred before Frank's death, but now they were much more frequent. Lieutenant Carroll decided to have the phone company put a trace on her line. As soon as they did, however, the phone calls stopped. However, Marie now reported other strange incidents. She found flower pots overturned 
and a pound of hamburger meat was taken off the kitchen counter near the back door, she claimed. At the same time, Doris filed a complaint. Hang-up calls were now happening at her house. The police had a trace put on her line now. But as soon as they did, you guessed it, the calls stopped. Marie had sold her house after Mike and Terry moved and now was living in an apartment several blocks away. She had her new phone number unlisted, but was still receiving nuisance calls. Now she also reported that she was being followed. She said a large dark car was obviously following her one night, but she'd managed to lose it by ducking down another street quickly. Unknown to Marie, the phone company had kept the trace on Doris's phone. Finally, they were able to get something off of it. A call made at 4.45 a.m. came from a company called Jenkins Manufacturing. Marie worked at Jenkins Manufacturing. When they told her what they'd discovered, she asked, So you think it's someone at Jenkins? Without a hint of surprise. When asked, she said of course she had nothing to do with it. After that, there was a six-week break in Marie's reports to police. And there was something else. Something that wasn't really noticed until much later. Several of the officers on the force had come down with what seemed to be a bad stomach bug. They had severe stomach pain, fevers, and nausea that continued to cycle around the department. The only one who hadn't gotten ill was Lieutenant Carroll, the only officer who never drank a cup of coffee in Marie Hilly's kitchen. Marie should have been set financially, but in the spring of 1977, two years after Frank's death, she asked her son for help. She had tried to apply for a bank loan, but had been turned down. They discriminated against single women, she explained. Would he co-sign a loan with her? Mike couldn't fathom why his mother would need a loan with the insurance money she'd received as well as her salary. She didn't tell him what the loan was for, and Mike didn't ask. He decided if his mother needed help, he would help her. No questions asked. She took out two loans for a total of $800, but she still had money problems. She refinanced her car for $4,500, but just a year later, she was falling behind on the payments. Marie sold her Oldsmobile for $4,000 and took an older car Mike owned, agreeing to take over the payments. Why he thinks she was a good credit risk is beyond me. Marie was still in a battle of wills with her daughter. Carol was in her last year of high school, and Marie felt she had no ambition, no direction. It was true. Carol didn't know what she wanted to do. But Marie just kept pushing her towards things that she felt she should do. Marie talked increasingly of moving away. Terry and Mike had since relocated to Pompano Beach, Florida, where Mike had been offered a position at First Christian Church. Marie wanted to move to Florida to be near them, but Carol wouldn't agree to go with her. She wanted to stay and graduate with her friends. Meanwhile, Carol had already wrecked her new car. It was drivable, but looked a mess. One day, Marie called Mike to tell him that Carol's car had been stolen. It was later found burned to a crisp on the top of a nearby mountain. Mike couldn't see why anyone would steal it. Later, Carol would confess to him that she and her mother had taken the car to a remote part of town, put a rag into the gas tank, and burned it for the insurance money. Marie began reporting nuisance calls to the police again, but this time was caught in a lie. She reported that a hang-up call had come in shortly before she'd received a call from her Aunt Margaret. Lieutenant Carroll checked with the phone company 
and found out that no calls had been received an hour before or after the call from Margaret. He asked her to clarify. She insisted that the call had come in right before the one from her aunt. The phone company is mistaken, she argued. Carol finally confronted her directly. Marie, we've tried and tried with this thing, and when we put a trace on, the calls stop. And when we take it off, they start up again. What's going on there, Marie? She now said someone working for the phone company must be involved. But she must have known that Lieutenant Carroll was no longer buying what she was selling. Her reports about the nuisance calls stopped. Carol graduated from high school, and Marie now insisted that they move to Pompano Beach, Florida. They left the day after her graduation ceremony. Marie began looking for a job and asked Mike to loan her some money to buy a few things she needed to get settled. He lent her his visa card. So dumb. He was surprised, really, when the bill came in, showing a $600 balance. While Marie was living with them, Mike and Terry received a new credit card in the mail. They rarely purchased anything on credit, so they just threw it in a drawer and forgot about it. They didn't notice for months when it disappeared from the drawer. Something more ominous happened while Marie was living with their son and his wife. Terry had given birth to their first child shortly before Marie moved to Florida. But actually, the baby was the second child she'd conceived. Soon after Frank's death, Terry became pregnant for the first time. She began to be nauseous most days, but believed it must simply be morning sickness. Terry and Mike were living in Marie's home, and Marie took it upon herself to prepare meals for Terry. There was only one thing she could stomach, and that was a soup that Marie made that she particularly liked. But Terry became even more ill, racked with stomach pain and cramps. She was hospitalized and put on an IV. They wondered if she might have contracted Frank's infectious hepatitis. She recovered a bit and went home. She was told to rest and take it easy. But within a few days of returning home, she was ill again. This time, she began hemorrhaging and miscarried the baby. Again, several weeks later, Terry was sick once more. She became weak and delirious and had to be taken to the hospital by ambulance. She stayed there for over a week to recover. She was in the hospital four separate times while living with her mother-in-law. Now Marie was living with them in Florida. Terry had been healthy since they left Anniston, but now she was sick again. This time the doctor said it was her kidneys. Taking care of a newborn and being sick on top of hosting her mother and sister-in-law was exhausting her. Both she and Mike were relieved when Marie decided to return to Anniston. Carol hadn't turned out to be the daughter Marie wanted. She kept pressing her to enter a trade school so she could land a secretarial position, like she had done at Carol's age. Carol was not excited about the prospect of spending her life confined to an office. Marie wanted Carol to dress up more and be more social, but Carol balked. It was true that Carol was drifting. She'd been doing so ever since the death of her father. He had been her anchor, and she felt alone and confused and unable to make any decisions about her life. In Anniston, she hung out with a group of friends who Marie didn't approve of. They would occasionally smoke marijuana, and whether Marie knew this or not, she sensed that they, in her opinion, were bad for her daughter. Back in Anniston, Marie and Carol moved in temporarily with Frida. Frida's mother, Carrie, also lived with her. Carrie confided that she'd agreed to live with her daughter, but wanted to return to her own home. Since Marie and Carol needed a place to stay, she now invited them to come live with her in her home. 
they could help pay for food and utilities, but Carrie wouldn't charge Marie any rent. Marie agreed. She was almost broke and could use the help. Marie still owed $3,000 on a loan that she had taken out a year before and almost $4,000 from a previous loan. Her credit rating was in the toilet and she couldn't even qualify for a car loan. But Marie decided to purchase more insurance. She had already bought a $25,000 life insurance policy on herself and a $14,000 one on Carol. Now from another company, she purchased a policy to cover personal and residential losses due to fire, as well as burial payments and cancer coverage. It also included additional life insurance. Marie would receive $25,000 if either Carol or Mike died. She was now covered for almost $40,000. One day, Carol woke and smelled smoke. Marie was the only one up, and Carol called out to her. They rushed to get Carrie out of the house. No one was hurt. The firefighters told them it had started in a sleeping bag on top of the washing machine. Marie slept in a sleeping bag in the living room, preferring it to sleeping in a bed in one of the rooms, one of her many quirks. They realized that the smoke detectors hadn't gone off and alerted them for some reason. Marie, acting embarrassed, said she'd taken the batteries out of them. They kept going off, she said, and bothered her. Other odd things began happening at Carrie's house. The wire to a window fan was cut, and later a phone cord was cut as well. This reminds me of the little dramas that happened when Beverly Allett became a house guest in our last episode. But Carrie found something that this time, I think, wasn't supposed to be discovered. She called Carol over one day and showed her what she found under the couch cushion. It was a thick piece of nylon rope curled next to a crowbar. It was found in the couch where Marie slept. They looked at it, not knowing what it meant. Carrie moved it to another location. The next day, the crowbar was back under the cushion. They never asked Marie about it. Marie would come home at lunchtime and watch a soap opera with Carrie while they ate. Carrie began to get ill in the afternoons, throwing up soon after eating lunch. It never got worse and then simply stopped. She didn't think anything of it, and it wasn't until much later that her daughter Frida would begin to put two and two together. Marie was in dire financial straits by 1978. She kept digging herself deeper and deeper into a financial hole. It was just over three years since Frank died, and she'd blown through all the life insurance money, had sold the house and spent that money as well, and had ran up her credit account so much that she'd had to take out loans to repay them. The loan payments were all past due. She kept borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, and no bank would extend her any more credit she began to formulate her next plan. Harold Dillard, Marie's ex-boss, had always been there for her. Of course, rumor had it that Marie had had an affair with her married employer. She sometimes worked part-time for cash. At least that's what she told Frida and Mike, sometimes showing them rolls of cash she'd earned working for Harold. Now she started seeing Harold again and began to try to manipulate him into leaving his wife. She wrote him a long letter about a fictional man named John who had offered to take her away from Aniston. He was a good man, she wrote, but she did not love him the way she did Harold, nor did they share the type of passion she had with Harold. John will never know the woman you knew, she wrote. Not even Frank knew that woman, because I've never responded to anyone the way I did to you. She'd resigned herself to a nice life with John and would be happy enough. This was a goodbye letter designed to spark Harold into action. She thought it would get him to declare his undying love, 
leave his wife, and rescue her. It didn't work. Next, she began writing to Calvin Robertson. Calvin was the high school boyfriend who'd stepped aside when Frank Hilly came along. He never forgot Marie. She had remained the girl that got away. Now he was stunned and delighted to receive a letter from her saying that she'd never forgotten him either, and if she could go back in time and do things over, she would have chosen him. Calvin, years earlier, had moved to San Francisco and was managing a national company and earning a good salary. He was married and had three grown children. He traveled to Anniston over the Thanksgiving weekend to visit his parents and met Marie for dinner. Calvin was a good family man, and Marie knew mere sex appeal alone wouldn't get him to leave his wife of 30 years. So she threw a curveball at him. Marie told Calvin that she was sick. Recent x-rays had shown a spot on her lungs. She told him not to be sad. She was going to fight and was determined to beat her illness. But it's so hard trying to do everything alone, she told him. And the treatments are so expensive. Oh, how I wish you could be by my side. Appealing to his good heart, she reeled him in like a helpless fish. She didn't even have to break a sweat. After Calvin returned home, he mailed Marie a check for $3,000. They began writing and calling each other several times a week. Marie soon declared her love for Calvin. While it was obvious he was smitten with Marie, she could feel him being pulled in two directions. He still loved his wife and felt guilty for betraying her. Marie could feel him slipping away. She would find reasons, like a small innocuous comment he would make that she pretended to take offense to, to become mad at him and threaten to break off the relationship. Calvin would tie himself in knots trying to get her to forgive him, sending her gifts and offering any help she needed. She kept him under her power in this way and by dangling her illness in front of him. He couldn't leave her if he believed she could die any time, could he? What kind of jerk would he be then? But when she couldn't persuade him by these tactics to make him leave his wife, she began to try and make him jealous. Once again, she claimed she was being wooed by another man, now telling Marie that all he wanted was a life with her. He would spoil her and Carol too. He planned another trip to Aniston. By this time, he had already confessed to his wife his infatuation with Marie. A few weeks before he was to arrive, she called him with good news. New x-rays showed that the spot on her lungs was gone. Before he even had time to express his joy and relief, she shared another piece of news. She was getting married. The fictional man named John now came back into the picture. She told Calvin she wasn't in love with him, but he was a good man who would take care of her. Even though she was moving away and getting married, she was still looking forward to his visit at the end of the month. Calvin arrived in Anniston, and if Marie thought her marriage plans would push him over the edge to leave his wife, she was mistaken. She must have forgotten that, like the first time when Frank came into the picture, Calvin's instinct was to simply step aside. He had come to say goodbye and wish her well. I can just hear her saying as he drove away, God damn it! Marie's final plan to solve her financial problems was the most callous and cruel of them all, and the one that would take her from just an ordinary wacko and gold digger to one of the most infamous criminals in Alabama history. Early in 1979, Marie told her Uncle Louie and Aunt Eileen that Carol had been sick. In the spring, she called them again when Carol's illness returned. They'd had tests done, and it wasn't good news, Marie reported. 
Carol had leukemia. She was planning to travel with Carol to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. She was going to get her the best doctors available, but it would be expensive, Marie admitted. She told her aunt and uncle that she owned property in Pompano Beach and that Mike was working to sell it. This would provide her the money she needed for Carol's treatment. Until she received the money from the sale, she asked them for a loan of a few thousand dollars to tide her over. Of course they agreed. They felt sorry for Marie. First, her husband had died of a terrible illness at a young age, and now her daughter was ill as well. They sent her a check. At the same time, Marie had another problem. Her son Mike was pressing her for answers about her money situation. She was planning to visit Mike in Florida, and he was going to use that time to get information out of her about what was going on. When he arrived at the Orlando airport to pick her up, he was paged over the airport PA system. It was a phone call from his mother. She said that on her way to the Birmingham airport, she had been run off the road by two men. They then grabbed her purse and cut her arm with a knife. She was waiting for the police and hadn't made the flight. Marie returned home and showed Carrie a few scratches on her arm. Carrie noticed that Marie still had her purse. When Mike called, she reported this to him. Mike then called the state police and asked about the incident. They had no record of anything like that or any report from Marie Hilly. Mike decided his mother must have a mental condition. He decided to travel to Anniston the next weekend to urge her to get help. When he confronted her about her money problems, she repeated a familiar mantra. She'd been telling Mike and everyone else for months that she and Frank had stock and she was going to cash it in and everything would be fine. It was just taking some time, she kept saying. The car that Mike had transferred to Marie on the promise that she'd take over payments was in arrears. The auto finance company had been hounding him, and now he lost patience. When he got Marie to tell him which bank was supposedly transferring cash into her account from the stock sale, he insisted they make a trip there immediately. She told him she would go with him, right after lunch. Mike was so upset with his mother that he had no appetite, but he drank down a large glass of Kool-Aid while waiting for his mother to finish her lunch. Suddenly, he was hit with a sharp stomach pain that doubled him over. He began vomiting, and it continued for close to an hour. Marie drove him to the doctor's office. He was given an injection for the nausea, and his symptoms began to subside. When he returned home, he fell into a deep sleep. Later that night, he awoke. Marie was gone. He realized that she had managed to put him off again. Now really suspicious about what was going on, he spied her purse on a counter. Maybe there was some information in it that would clue him in. He opened it and immediately froze. There was a gun inside. Now he was not only confused, but also afraid. What was his mother into? Still weak and feeling poorly, he went back to sleep. The next morning, his mother entered his room and said she had good news. She had the money to pay him back. She'd sold Carol's car. She doesn't need it, she explained. Mike returned home without ever visiting her bank. The next week, Marie called him with another bizarre story. She had been receiving threatening phone calls from a man demanding money. She said he told her Frank had run up large gambling debts in the months before his death. The caller was threatening Carol's life unless Marie paid him the outstanding money owed. I can only imagine that by bringing his sister's safety into the story, she believed Mike would find a way to give her some money. But Mike had no money and was tired of his mother's drama. He told her to call the FBI. 
they were the ones who might be able to help her, because he sure couldn't. When caught in a lie, Marie never retreated. She just doubled down. She actually did call the FBI. Her deceased husband had been a habitual gambler, she told them. He owed some very dangerous people money when he died, and now she was being threatened. She said she'd been making payments to these people, but they were now demanding $5,000, money she didn't have. She reported the threat against her daughter. The FBI called the Aniston Police Department and spoke to, you guessed it, Lieutenant Gary Carroll. He told them all about Marie's fabrications, but they had no choice but to treat the call seriously and investigate. Okay, this is where the story takes one of the first really bizarre turns. Get ready for this. The FBI set up a sting to catch the caller who was trying to extort money from Marie. She told them he had instructed her to put the money in an envelope and place it in the dog food section of the Winn-Dixie supermarket on 12th Street. She was to place the envelope behind the Alpo. An envelope with enough large bills wrapped around small bills to make it look like it contained $5,000 was prepared. An invisible powder was sprinkled on the envelope that would turn into a purple stain on contact with the moisture on the person's hands who picked it up. Undercover officers and agents took their positions to watch the entrances to the store and a female officer posing as a shopper was positioned inside. Another officer wearing casual attire perused the dog food aisle. Marie entered the store and placed the envelope behind the cans of Elpo dog food and left. After a little while, a man appeared in the aisle. He was wearing a suit and tie and seemed very out of place. He was carrying a package of toilet paper. He seemed nervous and then began reaching behind bags of dog food in the aisle. He didn't pull out the envelope. A woman began to approach, wheeling a shopping cart. Seeing her, he stepped away quickly. He paid for his toilet paper and left the store. The man was identified by the female officer as Walter Clinton, owner of Clinton Controls, Marie's former employer, and the man her husband caught her sleeping with. After questioning him, they found out that he had been set up. A woman had called him, someone's voice he hadn't recognized. She told him she had some papers that he needed. He'd been involved for some time in a lawsuit and thought it might have something to do with the case. She told him they'd be left for him in the store in the dog food aisle as she wished to remain anonymous. And why hadn't he been able to find the envelope? Walter Clinton was blind in one eye and had trouble with depth perception. He simply had been unable to see it. One wonders if he had found the envelope whether he might have been tackled to the ground by police officers and FBI agents in the parking lot of the Winn-Dixie. A dramatic scene I think Marie would have delighted in seeing. Now the FBI wanted to talk to her about the incident, but she became hard to connect with. She was caring for a very sick daughter, she said, and was unable to meet with them. In April 1979, Carol had already graduated from high school, but had a friend named Charlie Dyer who was a year behind her in school. They had been each other's prom dates for the past two years. Charlie invited her to attend his senior prom, and she agreed. They went to the prom and then to an after-party, where she had some drinks and smoked marijuana. All of a sudden, during the party, she was hit with a wave of nausea. Thinking it must be the alcohol, she was dropped off at home and went to bed. The next morning she attended church, but became ill again, having to leave the service to vomit. Carrie Hilly had been diagnosed with cancer and was undergoing treatments. She had fainted in church that morning and had been admitted to the hospital for observation. Carol went to visit her and was struck by the nausea again. After that, 
It continued nonstop for the rest of the day. Marie took her to the emergency room. They didn't find anything wrong, and assuming it must be a virus, gave her a shot for the nausea and sent her home. Over the next several weeks, Carol would continue to be ill. She would improve a little and then have another bout of nausea and stomach pain. She also began getting terrible headaches along with the other symptoms. She saw doctors many times, but they couldn't figure out the cause and merely treated the symptoms. Every time Carol thought she was beginning to improve, the sickness would begin again. It went on for months. While Carol was sick, Marie promised to buy her a car to replace the one she'd sold to pay off the debt to Mike. She even went as far as to say she'd put in an order for Carol's dream car, a Camaro. On the way to pick up the car, Carol was still sick. Marie pulled into a convenience store and bought a bottle of Maalox to help calm Carol's nausea. She didn't have a spoon or cup, so Marie produced an empty aspirin bottle for Carol to drink out of. When she poured the Maalox into the bottle, Carol noticed that it bubbled and fizzed. As she drank the Maalox, it burned going down her throat. Within minutes, Carol was violently ill, and Marie said they had no choice but to return home. The car would have to wait. To make it up to Carol, and to finally give her her long-awaited independence, Marie helped Carol rent an apartment of her own. Marie then went to a furniture store and purchased over $2,000 of furniture for her by writing a bad check. It would be the beginning of her undoing. On August 8th, Marie wrote a second bad check. This one was for just over $124. It was a payment to Liberty National Life Insurance to cover the two $25,000 policies she had taken out the previous year. It was to cover the period through August 31st. When Carol wasn't in the hospital, she was at her apartment, but rather than gaining her independence, she was trapped with her mother. She was so sick that Marie was around all the time, giving her medication and urging her to eat. A friend of Carol's, Eve Cole, was visiting one day when Marie arrived with the syringe. Carol's doctor, Dr. Donald, had given her permission to give Carol shots at home, she explained. Eve witnessed Marie injecting Carol in her backside. But nothing was helping, and Carol became worse. Now she began to have trouble walking. Her legs felt so heavy, and she felt a numbness in her toes, and then the tips of her fingers. Carol was taken to another doctor, now four months after she'd first become ill. She was very thin, extremely dehydrated, and needed to be hospitalized, the doctors told them. She had lost 15 pounds. Even before her illness, Carol was a tiny girl, weighing only 105 pounds. Now she barely weighed 90. When doctors could find no cause for her illness, they began to wonder whether Carol wasn't starving herself and making herself ill. They began to treat her for a possible mental illness. They finally decided to send her to the psychiatric ward at Caraway Methodist Hospital. The first assessment of her physical condition reported a history of repeated stomach distress and vomiting. She had also lost a dangerous amount of weight and some of her strength. She had a tingling numbness in her hands and feet. Some of her reflexes were dulled, and she had lost part of the feeling at the bottom of her feet. She moved awkwardly with jerky steps. There was some sign of anemia. They guessed that perhaps she was nutrient deficient and began giving her injections of vitamin B12. They were mainly concerned about her mental state. Carol had become increasingly depressed due to her prolonged illness. She felt miserable most of the time. She began to act out angrily because she was so irritated with all the poking and prodding and questions, 
and she was still not getting any better. Now they added a tranquilizer and antidepressants to her medications, and she was kept locked in the psychiatric ward for further observation. Meanwhile, Marie's check to the furniture store had bounced. She had not made good on it and continued to write bad checks. The total she was overdrawn was now more than $5,000. The bank decided to press charges. Marie was arrested for obtaining money by false pretense. She was booked and released the same day. The news of her arrest, however, made the local papers. Over the next several days, she ran around trying to cover her debts to several banks. Her most urgent goal was to cover the premium on the life insurance policy. The check she had written was returned to the bank for insufficient funds. She went into the insurance office and gave them another check, this time for $380. It would reinstate the coverage beginning September 1st, a few days before it was written. The checks she were writing were from another bank account that was overdrawn as well. She returned to Carol's hospital room. This time she brought with her two orange pills. She said she had gotten them from a woman she met in the hospital waiting room, whose daughter had experienced a similar illness. It worked for her, she told Carol. It helped her legs. She told her she'd asked Doris, her neighbor, and the former nurse, who said the medicine might help. At this point, Carol was willing to try anything to feel better. She took them. Sometime later, maybe a day or two, Carol had trouble keeping track of time now. Marie returned with a secret. I have a medicine to help you, she told her, withdrawing a syringe from her purse. She said she'd gotten it from Doris, who told her it would help Carol with the numbness in her feet. Marie would give her the injection, but Carol couldn't tell anyone. Doris could get into trouble for giving it to her, she explained. Carol promised not to tell. She looked for signs of improvement in the next few days, but the numbness in her legs seemed to be spreading instead of getting better. Her friend Eve Cole came to visit her in the hospital. Carol, desperately needing to feel hopeful, told her friend about the shots. She was trying to convince herself that they were going to help. She gave you some shots, Eve asked her. She remembered Marie giving her the injection at home the other time she'd visited her friend. She thought it might make sense to give someone injections at home, but why would Marie need to do that herself when Carol was in the hospital? She thought it was odd. Eve, coincidentally, worked at the Army Depot with Frida Hilly. She mentioned her visit to Carol and what she told her about Marie giving her injections. Frida's thoughts immediately returned to her brother Frank, who told her about receiving injections from Marie just before he died so suddenly. Frida talked it over with her mother Carrie that night, and they decided to call Mike. After Marie's arrest and all his mother's financial problems and deceptions and her odd assertions of being threatened and harassed, Mike began to question everything. So much so that he'd called the coroner just a month earlier to ask him a question. Could a diagnosis of infectious hepatitis be consistent with something else, like poison? In theory, it could be, the coroner answered. If the body was exhumed, could they test for something like that, Mike wanted to know? Yes, the coroner answered but they'd have to have some actual proof to take such a step. Call me if you uncover anything, he told him. Mike now called Carol in the hospital. Carol was alone, and Mike spent a few minutes asking about her health. He then asked, Carol, is mom giving you injections? Carol at first hesitated. In that pause, Mike knew. No, she hasn't, she said, not very convincingly. Carol, do you swear? Did mother give you a shot? Yes, she did, Carol finally admitted. Mike called Carol's doctor and told him what he suspected. 
The doctor didn't believe Marie was poisoning her daughter. But for Carol's mental health, told Marie not to visit her for a while, banning her from the ward. Marie was now demanding to see her daughter. When she was refused, she told the doctor she was taking Carol out of the hospital. She'd been there for three weeks, she complained, and they hadn't seen any improvement. She said she was taking her to the Mayo Clinic, or Oshner Hospital in New Orleans, to see a specialist. She came and took Carol, who now could barely walk, and had to be halfway carried out. Marie was staying in a motel in Birmingham. She told Carol they'd drive home to Anniston in the morning. But for whatever reason, instead of driving her home the next day, she took her to the University of Alabama Hospital to be seen. Carol was furious. She just wanted to go home. She was sick of hospitals, and nobody seemed to help her anyway. But Carol caught a lucky break this time. She was seen by a young neurologist named Dr. Brian Thompson. He examined Carol and found that all her muscular and neurological functioning had deteriorated to an alarming degree. The feeling was gone from her feet and legs. She was virtually paralyzed below the knees, and her hands were nearly useless. The doctor was just beginning his residency at the university hospital. He was very thorough with his patients, and Carol's case was puzzling. He first diagnosed her with peripheral neuropathy, nerve damage affecting the hands and feet, but he still needed to find the cause. He ordered a battery of tests. Marie, of course, was right beside her. On September 20th, not long after Carol was admitted, two men arrived at the hospital looking for Audrey Marie Hilly. They were detectives from the Birmingham Police Department serving a warrant from Anniston. She was being arrested for new charges of passing bad checks, as well as for contempt of court for not appearing for her hearing. Marie was sent to the Birmingham City Jail and would spend the night there. Officers from Anniston would come to pick her up in the morning. Carol panicked that her mother had been taken away and called her Aunt Frida. She went to Birmingham to be with Carol. Once there, she approached Dr. Thompson with her suspicions about the injections Marie had given her niece. Luckily, he took her concerns seriously. He knew that the nerve damage she had sustained could also be caused by exposure to heavy metals, like lead, mercury, and arsenic. If the injections had anything to do with her symptoms, it was most likely arsenic. There was lab tests, of course, that could test for its presence. But there was a faster way to check for arsenic poisoning. The arsenic eliminated the pink pigment from the fingernails, creating a white line across the width of the nail. These are called Aldridge Mies lines and were visible about six weeks after arsenic has been introduced into the body. He returned to Carol's room and inspected her hands and feet. Every one of her fingers and toes exhibited the telltale white lines. Carol was moved to a secure room, and staff was alerted not to let Marie anywhere near her daughter. Carol was finally safe. Now investigators worked quickly to build a case against Marie Hilly. Lieutenant Carroll was told that tests confirmed that Carroll's hair contained measurable amounts of arsenic. They pulled Frank's medical records and confirmed with doctors that his illness was also consistent with arsenic poisoning. His body would have to be exhumed to know for certain. Lieutenant Carroll questioned Marie on September 26th, recording their interview. He asked her about Frank's illness and death, about Carol's illness and her reason for taking Carol so abruptly out of Caraway Hospital, he also asked if she knew about Carol's recent diagnosis. She said she'd been told it was arsenic poisoning, but when asked if she knew how Carol got arsenic poisoning, she answered, I certainly do not. 
She at first denied giving Carol any injections, but when pressed, finally admitted she had. But she said it was only an anti-nausea medication. He tried to give her an easy way to confess, bringing up all the stress she'd been under with Frank's death and her financial problems. He implied that perhaps she'd had a mental break and did something she now felt remorse for. She wouldn't bite. But her admission that she'd injected Carol with something was enough to arrest her for attempted murder. While Marie sat in jail, the investigation continued. Frida went through Marie's things at her mother's house and found a pill prescription bottle that contained a liquid. She dropped it off at the police station. Police checked out Marie's purse from the locker where inmates' property is kept when they're booked into jail. They found various medicine bottles with liquid, pills, and powdered substances. They returned to Carrie Hilly's house and did a search, taking away several items, including another medicine bottle. Frida also remembered that Marie had stored some things in Carrie's garage and went through the items. She found a bottle in one of her boxes labeled Rat and Mouse Poison. The label listed the active ingredient as arsenic trioxide, 1.5%. Frank Hilly's body was exhumed on October 3rd. A press conference was called after tests were conducted on his remains. The presence of significant amounts of arsenic was found in his body, but they would have to determine still if it would result in a murder charge for Marie Hilly. Marie's bail was set at $10,000 on the charge of attempted murder and $2,000 on each of the bad check charges. The district attorney's office was working to get her bail revoked after a cellmate reported that Marie told her if she got bail, she was going to run. But she was released on bail on November 11th after four local residents put up the money for the bond. They couldn't believe Marie Hilly did what she was accused of. One of the people who provided a portion of the $14,000 was a prominent businessman who had helped her with employment and loans in the past. While out on bail, Marie Hilly was threatened by her sister-in-law, Jewel, Frank's other sister. As a result, her lawyers moved her into a motel under an assumed name for her safety. She was set to appear in court on the attempted murder charge in two weeks. On Sunday, November 18th, when her lawyer, Wilfred Lane, arrived to visit Marie at the motel, he found her room in disarray. Marie's clothes and suitcases were still there. The only things missing were her wallet, credit cards, and checkbook, and Marie herself. A note written on motel stationery was left behind. It read, Lane, you led me straight to her. You will hear from me. Marie was gone. That will do it for part one of this story. There is way more to this tale, and I can't wait to share it with you. You're really not going to believe this one. So I'll be back next week with the conclusion, and I hope you'll join me then. And tell a friend, you're going to want to have someone to talk about this crazy case with. That reminds me, don't forget, we have a Facebook group where you can discuss episodes, share true crime updates and stories, and just hang out with some really cool people. Look for the Once Upon a Crime podcast fan page on Facebook and join the fun. I'll provide a link in the show notes. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Thank you.